Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 18 of the podcast, the topic is the future of industrial operations. Our guest is Natan Linder, CEO and co-founder of Tulip Interfaces, the manufacturing technology platform spun out of MIT Media Lab. We talk about fusing hardware, software, and design to create new product experiences. We touch on additive manufacturing, augmented reality, and the manufacturing industry's image problem. Natan, how are you doing? I am good. How are you? It is good to I see you. I am doing, yeah, likewise. It's been a while. It has been indeed. Yeah. All right, Natan, I am excited to have you on the show. I wanted to... Um, this is typical with uh, with guests that are super accomplished. Your your CV as long as like uh, like no tomorrow, but it's full of wonderful things. So I wanted to highlight just a couple of things and then ask them ask you about it. So you are from Israel, and one of the things that you did before you came to the U.S. was uh, you were the co-founder and manager of the Samsung Electronics R and D Center, and I think that is actually crucial for some of the things you did later, and I'll, I want to ask you about that. Uh, but then you went to MIT and uh, went through Media Lab, right? Two degrees, um, yep. including the a PhD that you just finished up. Um, you have founded at least two excellent companies that we'll get into, Form Labs and Tulip Interfaces, co-founded, I should say, uh, in some cases. Yep, both. And you've yep. been involved with uh, a lot of other things that we're going to get into. But, you know, I just listed all these things. The thing is, that's, you know, what's on your public record. What are some of the things um, that few people know about you or that are kind of clues to why you have been so immensely successful? Well, I, I don't know if I can put my finger on like one thing. I think I come from a background of... Uh, I was just asking you, uh, you know, some of the things that have been, I guess, also the most, most important in, in your background, you think, in terms of shaping you. Yeah. So, look, I don't think it's that atypical for the kids, you know, a, a kid who's growing up uh, in the 80s, 90s, you know, with the computer revolution uh, that went down, you know, Windows 95 and on and internet and being fascinated with um, all things, uh, computers, learning to program, that kind of stuff. And so that you would say that was your childhood or that was your early uh, teenage years. You were just into all kinds of things, yeah. technology. Yeah, but I grew up with a dad who's an engineer that basically built things. So, you know, my dad uh, built a a four meter uh, uh, wide uh, satellite dish that had like PLC controllers on it. So like, you know, it's not like just programming visual basic and things like that. Like I learned how to program control systems kind of like in an early age. And see, I knew there was a secret, Natan. See, I never asked you this question before. And I, I knew that there was something in your background that I hadn't gotten my, 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 wrap my head around. So the reason I asked this of all my guests is that there's always something. Uh, you know, in, in, in an outstanding uh, person's career, there's always always something. Let, tell me though, um, you've done all these things. <laughs> one of the things I wanted to ask you, you're actually one of the very few Israeli 
uh, you know, people you meet in the U.S. who doesn't claim that they have been part of the uh, Israeli um, top uh, secret uh, electronics forces. Is that <laughs> is that right? <laughs> you know, I, I even if I was, I wouldn't be able to tell you, right? Um, well, exactly. So but, maybe you're the only one who actually was, because I hear that story a lot, and and there's so many well, that this unit must be like the largest unit in Israel, because basically everybody you meet who is in innovation and startups, they will tell you right off the bat that yeah, they spent significant time, you know, doing hush hush work that they can't talk about. I just I find it kind of interesting. Yeah, but you know, I gotta disappoint you. Uh, that I, I was part of the operational intelligence oh, no! of the Air Force, but <laughs> but it but it's not that unit. It's not those units. There there are several units, and and it is you know it is a you know a defining experience where you meet uh, and uh, a lot of creative people and get to do many things that are um, you know pretty high tech uh, and intense and 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 exciting. And I think you know if I tie it to the the early experience I shared with you, I guess what, what, if I tried to tell it to myself, it's like, I don't know how exactly, but at some point growing up, I realized that I'm attracted to where hardware and software coexist. And this is a place where a lot of value. Well, first, before I thought about it as, you know, pure value, like, you know, the way entrepreneurs think about stuff, it was more about, Hey, I can just build like an amazing experience that if you don't think about hardware and software together, that you just, you're not building. And that's, that's kind of like what brought me to MIT or, you know, my experience working on collaborative robots uh, back at the day when rethink robot robotics started or building 3d printers, or of course, you know, the stuff we do now with Tulip. So it's all but kind Natan, of, I mean, this theme. is, um, this is really crucial for me because you said something, you know, where software and hardware coexist and that really is the deep tech moment that we're in, isn't it? So you're saying that from an early age, this was kind of ingrained in you that it, it wasn't just a game about software. It was both. Um, yeah. and, and one of the reasons I said, let's start a little bit around the Samsung experience as well is you seem to have not only had this awareness and this kind of dabbling with with hardware, but you've had a, an acute sense of how this all had to be packaged in some way. And maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, Samsung, you know, obviously is a product-based company at the end of the day, as as long, you know, as well as an R&D company, but they also, they take it all the way to products. Tell yep. me a little bit about how long it takes to integrate all those areas, because as we'll get into, right, the companies you have started, they merge all of these things. Of course, you you then have the Media Lab experience, which we'll get into, but but it's not simple to merge hardware, software, and design, and then go on to create true products that people love. Right. So, you know, for me, one of the most formative experiences, and this is sort of why I called Samsung my real grad school, because basically I, I, I was, it was like a kid in a candy store, like getting exposed to how uh, real consumer products are being designed, designed, uh, engineered, brought to market, sold. Uh, and, you know, I think what you said about Samsung is very true, but, you know, I have a slightly different way to describe this company, which is, it's like a giant integration shop. So they're able to take all these technologies and put them together um, and it's interesting that you mentioned, um, uh, the, you know, the product cycles or how long does it take? And, uh, uh, you know, two quick comments about that. So 
the you know to to make truly you know groundbreaking uh, tech products that people love, it takes it takes a long time. But the companies yeah. who scale it like learn to do it on ever increasing cycles. Um, and Samsung learned how to do that, and they did it in in I, I was specifically part of Samsung Mobile, and at, at the, it, kind of like exactly pre iPhone era, a little bit of af, post iPhone era, and and so we've seen like. Well, they were caught by surprise, right? I mean, they, they had to learn it kind of on the fly because they discovered, despite all of their R&D, arguably, or, or maybe would you see it the opposite way? They just got well, an opportunity to shine it, as well. I mean, it was sort it, of like a joint opportunity. The opportunity was created and then they jumped into it. Yeah, but, you know, they had, Samsung specifically had quite a few, you know, touchscreen devices. And you remember like all the hybrid uh, Palm oh, Pilot-like I do, I do. phones. No, I'm not selling them short. I'm just yeah, saying, Windows I mean, there's D, Apple. So. But I know, but the thing that, that I think caught everybody by surprise is the change of the business model where the, you know, uh, Wi-Fi chips were like, looked at like a strange thing. Would we have it on our phones? It will disrupt the carrier model and things like that. And you think about yeah. it from a perspective of 15 years and it's like, this is ridiculous. And, and it shows you like how, while, you know, technologies, um, uh, come about quickly and we get excited with them, but for them to really assimilate into the mainstream and become something we all take for granted takes actually longer than people perceive. And, and uh, you know, I lived through that uh, quite a few times. And, and on that, you know, what I, I can tell you, like, you know, having this perspective from the inside, it made me, uh, I wouldn't say completely fearless, but courageous enough to undertake hardware software related projects and drive them through. And, you know, if you look at the past decade, you know, a decade ago, people didn't talk about places like Shenzhen, the way we kind of almost take them for granted now, what it does for s speed of producing new products, the supply chain and all that kind of stuff. And that played really into it because that's the backdrop of the last, I'd say, decade of hardware driven startups um, and what they did in, in, in you know, bringing new revolutionary products to the market. No, that's true. I mean, you need that infrastructure. I, I mean, I would go as far as to say that innovators, you know, if you were sort of a coffee shop innovator that was sitting there scratching your head, what are you going to innovate on? Certainly hardware would be the furthest from, from your mind, right? Just because, you know, you just looked at the face of it, you know, how would I get all these things together? And then how would I build it? And, and, you know, how would I get even to and how the would you scale it? How would and you, how would you scale it more importantly? Yes. So yeah. let's touch for a few seconds on the media lab. We can't just skip over that important part of it. I want to ask you a very pointed question. You worked at the Fluid Interfaces Group. What yeah. on the planet is Fluid Interfaces? That is a good question. Um, <laughs> so it I just met, sounds cool, but it's very hard to kind of capture in a in a sentence, isn't it? It is. Um, I, I think. I think uh, when I met Padi Maz, Professor Padi Maz, who was my advisor, you know, very, very lucky, very privileged to work with her, and she came from a background of uh, classic artificial in intelligence and contributed, like, you know, seminal technologies that today also we take for granted, like uh, you know, software agents that help us like choose the next product on Amazon and things like that. And the the idea that 
you could use these kinds of technologies like to uh, empower humans to, you know, to use better interfaces to create better experiences that they can be more productive, happy, remember things better, um, you know, things that are, you know, more or less call, you call it in the human domain uh, was, was the center of the appeal for me. So it's like, it was like kind of like, if you think about what I did before coming to the media lab, it was like, mostly around interfaces because mobile phones, yes, there's a system, there's a board, there's software, it's hardcore embedded engineering. It's same, same is true for robotics, but how a human would use this very complex thing is where, uh, you know, is, is where, it, where it's at for me, that, 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 that's what, uh, drove me to the media lab and there but, you know, and it, you said on the on the linkedin profile of yours you say uh you have a sort of curious action statement that i believe is similar to what you're saying now you say fusing tech and design to create new experiences so now you're bringing yep. in the word design and experiences are, are those the things that you learned then at the media lab to take it all the way not just to the design which you know kind of is the third leg after software hardware but then truly to the experience which of course you know is a big buzzword everywhere in product right. these days right. but but it right. actually is something real right it's something very real yeah there's tons of research like why design and specifically human-centered design creates a lot of value, but I'll, I'll answer this through an example, okay? So, yeah. so uh, you know, just before coming to the lab, uh, Patty introduced me to Rodney Brooks, who, you know, uh, from MIT as well, he ran CSAIL and um, he started iRobot and, and kind of created real uh, consumer and, and not only consumer also, uh, defense products uh, through robotic platforms. And when I met him, he basically told me a story around how he believes that there should be a new breed of robots, call them collaborative robots or cobots, and how yeah. humans should have a new way of programming the robot, which when you think about it, it's like it is a design and an experience problem. Like, how do you, how do you take a human that with no skills in programming such a complex machine and give them new tools uh, other than dependence and the classic ways of, of, of uh, creating uh, a, a program for a robot. And so I see that as a, as a classic design problem. And, and I see, I see it the same thing as like, you know, when form labs, we took a very sophisticated, complex, um, uh, you know, 3d printing uh, uh, machine, specifically stereolithography and made it such that anybody with basic experience, you know, connecting, um, you know, uh, an espresso machine and following instructions and clicking on buttons can start printing in like less than 10 minutes. And that, that yeah. is, that is where design lives. So, yeah. And 3d printing is of course, uh, at least for many people, uh, a, a mega trend that people are looking at and saying, you know, decentralized production, decentralize everything. Sure. But you guys have, have with Tulip, uh, and uh, your more recent startup, uh, you have kind of elevated this discussion to a broader level than just printing the goods. So you guys are, and that's, you know, today's topic, we want to talk about the future of industrial operations much more broadly. What, yep. what does that mean? Can you unpack that a little for us? Like in industrial operations, it almost sounds kind of 1950s to me, but obviously right. 
you know, that's because it uses the word industry and then operations, which, you know, operations three shirts, it has a tradition. What, what do you mean by industrial operations? And in fact, could you clear up, uh, you know, this concept soup in this business? Because, all right, let me just list them off for you. And then you clarify what are the key terms and what do they mean? Additive, manufacturing, agile, Connected manufacturing, ARXR, Industry 4.0, Digital Factory. I've just listed a few. Yeah. But which of these matter and what do they really mean? Wow. Those are, first of all, there was a lot of buzzwords. So let me try and go on a stream of consciousness here and do my best to kind of tie it all. I think they all fall like, you know, if we're trying to step away from the buzzwords in, you know, uh, advances in uh, manufacturing technologies and and the way they're orchestrated, uh, you know, throughout our, uh, backend system software and supply chains to, you know, really enable companies to produce, uh, uh, you know, products and deliver them to customers. That's at the broadest level. And, you know, I, I, I unpack like, like before I go to unpacking the specific terms, which I definitely want to spend time on today. Um, and cause I think it's a work, like there's not enough, uh, critical thought applied to those terms. So we, we well, because we some def- of them are marketing terms, and others Correct. seem much deeper, Cor- or Cor- they are connected to something real, sure. but they just become used in such a loose fashion. Right. So when when we think about it, like you know, um, our humans are the technological mammal. Like what we do is we create technology, and then we you know fast forward to modern times. <laughs> We make factories to make them so we can all enjoy them. And, um, yeah. and and then we do it again in factories have a life cycle, products have a life cycle, so on. The, the traditional, now it's like becoming sort of traditional, like these ideas of like industry, you know, around industry 4.0 that we went through, you know, the, you know, from the steam to the electrical, from the electrical to the connected, and from that to the, you know, um, industry 4.0, which is kind of like the mesh of all those technologies coming together with what the internet, uh, you know, on tap computation gives you to do, uh, smart things. Like for me at the end of the day, like I can give you a simple description of my decade plus of, of my past decade plus, like basically when you go to those operational environments where humans are there and they're doing what we call frontline work, whether they're assembling a product, tending to machines, driving a warehouse and all that kind of stuff. The internet, as you and I know it, and as uh, people know it, because uh, they're, you know, a lot of people in our cir- circles are what we would define knowledge workers, which means right. they would make decisions based on data, doesn't exist. Yep. It doesn't exist in, in, in a way that is routinely available and, and meets the uh, dynamic nature of operations. And uh, what wait, I mean wait, by wait. that... Well, not, and what you're saying is basically these things aren't continuous in the sense that there, there's no march from from kind of uh, the Stone Age to advanced and not everybody right. is advanced. And, but are you then talking about the management not being caught up or are you talking about the entire system, including the frontline workers may or may not be uh, sort of industry 4.0 and, and the same is true for their managers and the tr- same is true for the infrastructure and it's some combo of that that you actually need to assemble in order to even get close to any of these buzzwords in practice, right? In a factory. Yeah, so, so you, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in practice, it, there's a really simple way to understand it. The first sort of 30 years of digital transformation, like if you take PC, modern operators, uh, mo- modern operating system, internet, here we are. Like, where yeah. did it go? It went to yeah. backend systems, like for your HR, finance, marketing and sales, ERPs, and so on. 
And yeah. why did it not arrive at operations the way we see it in other places is because it's hard because it's the combination of digital and physical, because you have people who are not behind desks and, and you have environments that are, you know, they're less robust. Uh, you know, if you want to move uh, uh, people sitting in one environment to another environment in the office, it's much easier uh, than like uh, shifting a production line. And the, the thing that is missing from all the industry 4.0 uh, super buzzword that you talked about is basically two big revolutions that happened uh, kind of in parallel, but they're like in the tech circles are less spoken of. One is the quality revolution. So like the idea that, you know, you have to think about quality as a big thing that drives manufacturing. And the other is what it generally is called lean manufacturing. And as you know, very well started like from thought at MIT, uh, went to, uh, you know, the evolved into the Toyota production system, then went back, you know, got, you know, in the washing machine, Six Sigma and many other things uh, along those lines. And, but what are these? These are like way of ways of uh, conducting operations that uh, basically moves value to the customer. Now, it turns out that to do that, you need data and you need to be able to, when do you move value to the customer? When you found new ways of creating that value. Now, how do you find that, you know, better quality, less waste, all those things. And the number one thing that makes that happen for real is data that you can act upon. Now, if your yeah. ability to collect and act on this data is very limited because of you know, rigid systems, you know, uh, clunky, expensive that, no, you know, do not put humans in the center, then you already lost the game. And like, this is the moment where we are, where you're seeing the shift of all those trends. And again, I'm sorry for adding more buzzword to our soups here. Like, you know, it, the, you heard this term, the citizen developer, you know, because Tulip is doing, um, uh, you know, a lot in the no, no code space. We're letting people who are engineers, but they're not software engineers, and we let them you know, they might be safety, process, lean, manufacturing engineers, you know, uh, industrial engineers. Just I love that term, the no-code space. So you're defining people in terms of whether they code or not code. Well, it's not, it's not just me. I think now it's like, uh, yeah. and I don't think no-code is fundamentally new, by the way. Like, um, no, no, I understand. It's just, it is still for me a funny term because, uh, and it just proves that the people who get to create the definitions, they, they, uh, you know, they, they have the power here because so, so for you, that really is uh, part of the enablers that we'll talk about with Tulip, right? It's, it's the ability to get frontline workers into a position where if they may not be able to generate code, but they're certainly in a different, right. you know, in a different situation. But we'll get into to Tulip in a second. I just want to ask you one thing. When sure. will manufacturing's image problem disappear? Because th there's this discrepancy between this concept soup that operates at the World Economic Forum and in policy documents, and yeah. to some extent among innovators. And then there's the reality that you just talked about, the fact that you walk in to a factory and you see 18th century written on the wall everywhere. And, and you've told me this before when you walked into a factory, right? It's shocking. So the yeah. kinds of things you don't, you need to do is not to infuse them with AI. It's to get them to start counting, you know, beans right. and, 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 you know, uh, products. But when will, this image, because things are changing, as you pointed out, when will this sure. image disappear that manufacturing somehow not only is backward, but will remain backward, which is kind of the real big question here. So, you know, I'm not a PR expert, but, uh, you know, I have this funny anecdote about this question that I always, uh, when I'm asked this, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that, you know, you walk into a classroom and you say, like, who wants to work in manufacturing? And like, nobody raises their hands. And then you ask, 
you know, like, who wants to work with like advanced analytics, uh, no code, robotics, uh, control systems, and 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 you know, software, that kind of stuff. And like, of course, everybody raised their hands. So, yep, yep. you know, I I think the the pressure, you know, I, and and we we've discussed this issue before, like the fact that we have in the U S a skill gap of roughly 2.5, 3 million by 2025, um, of, you know, professional hands needed uh, to like do work in manufacturing is, is a real thing. And, you know, there are a lot yeah. of manufacturing job. And like, when you think about the workforce with like the silver tsunami, so, you know, baby boomers are retiring obviously. And, um, and like, transferring the knowledge becomes very hard and the millennial post-millennial generation come in and they're like, what is this clipboard? Like we can't even do work here. You know, what, what, <laughs> what, where is the touchscreen? Like, why are we not working with analytics? And so the, yeah. I see the bottom up pressure, which is obviously yeah. a trend that we're building on when, as we are trying to serve and, and kind of uh, uh, create value for our customers. And but that's it, good, right? Without this bottom-up pressure, it, very absolutely. little would change because you can't just stuff technology down people's uh, throats, right? Absolutely. And now think about the top-down for a second, because like I think you know, you and I are more or less, I think, the same Gen X era type people. And like yeah. when when you think about the decision makers today, you know, they're you know, they're people like us and younger than us even that sure. uh, come in and, you know, they were born close enough to the internet or with the internet or with mobile, like their perception of what is considered state of the art is different. So that's the top-down pressure. Now, yeah. when you put the two together, the real change will happen is, is when, you know, you could not build viable businesses. Otherwise, it's not a question like, is it cool? Do we need to do it? Or, you know, this buzzword, that buzzword. It's like, it's actually essential to be competitive. And, you know, with that, it's like, you know, if you, if we would go back in time, even 20, 30 years ago, probably GE is the most respect, like everybody wants a job there, you know, and yep. they're considering cutting edge and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, what did they adopt? They actually adopted lean manufacturing when you think about yeah. it. And, right. and, and, um, I, and I think that some of that, some of that is happening. It's amplified and we got, you know, we, I don't know if you want to go into the pandemic, you know, every, every conversation that we have now, like there's some backdrop of, Hey, this is what's happening in the world, but yeah, we, got sure. a, we got a pretty serious like wake up call. You know, all the alarms went up when you, you have to go into manufacturing and you know, he, how does that sound? Like you need to press a button and change how the production line is going to organize what is making, how you're training people, how you're measuring it, what the FDA is going to come in and say, because now you're making PPE or vaccine kits or whatever it is you're making. And if you're relying on nothing or some homegrown yeah. software or some old school stuff that does, that is so rigid, then you're not going to make it. Now, this is not a pandemic issue. This is what I've been explaining to, you know, and been hearing from my customers and partners and like explaining to anybody who would listen. It's like, this is actually the new bar for how you have to think about your product development and production cycle. And this Got is it. not science fiction. This is now, you know? Yeah, and I have a yeah. great I have a great anecdote on that if you want. Um, I'm, I'm I'll take it. I, I have a question on COVID uh, a little bit later, but I just wanted to cover something. But give me your anecdote, and then I'll, I'm going to ask you about the, the, some of the emerging the, technologies. The small anecdote, and we can include the link to that. There was this uh, c company called Meter, which is a startup uh, in you know in the advanced manufacturing space. That uh, you know when the pandemic hit, they they started building uh, what's called an emergency ventilator. So this is one of those teams that, you know, in three weeks went through the whole process from design to getting ready to manufacturing because of their mindset, because they understand 
you know, the supply chain and build on uh, available uh, components. They use tools like, uh, you know, online CAD and, and Tulip to like think about manufacturing in advance and so on. So that's, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's an anecdote of like how, you know, if, if you would try and think about that kind of product design manufacturing process, like even six months ago, you would like, nothing great. What are you smoking? I want some of that. And, but this yeah. stuff is, this stuff is here and now. And in the complementary anecdote, you think, you, you know, think about a company like Medtronic. So Medtronic put out their ventilator project uh, as open source. Of course, they did it from a point of view of, uh, you know, helping, you know, uh, you know, helping the fight against the pandemic. And that's awesome. And, you know, I'm not trying to start, should we open source manufacturing? But the story is that we, we at Tulip took that open source it and, and as a public service, kind of put it on Tulip, put it out there. And then we started seeing teams from Africa, from Saudi Arabia, places that there are no Medtronic factories. There's no sure. anybody's. And, and they're like, hey, we need access to that. And that's what the cloud-based technology gives you today, not so in like 10 years. Let's talk about these technologies for one second, and then we are going to move on to, to Tulip. I want to talk about some of the concrete things you're doing. but. Yep. And this rapidly again becomes a concept soup, but you know they're slightly more real as you've pointed out. The technologies that you are the most excited or worried about when it comes to applying them into industrial operations, what are they? I mean, we've talked about some of them. I mean, IoT devices, definitely sensors. We haven't talked so much about, and I know that's crucial yeah. to a lot of you do uh, at Tulip. Uh, but then you have, you know, all the cloud type of discussions. You have all kinds of wearables and devices. Yeah. Um, but then you have good old mobile phones that I know you use as well. What yeah. are the technologies that are already here and now and can you, you can hot plug them into manufacturing environments? And what are the ones that are more on the horizon that you're sort of seeing? This is going to start becoming relevant now. Just g yeah. give me a little bit of an overview of the, that. The and then thing, I want to the get into Tulip. Yeah, the things that are here now and, and, and they're becoming very much a reality is like really robust, uh, cloud infrastructure, you know, for your storage, you know, for connecting your, your assets, uh, for running multiple, uh, uh, applications that deal with a lot of data. That, that's, let's call it like the infrastructure layer. You know, on top of that, you know, obviously we are all aware of, um, um, the, you know, the, you know, the connectivity to, you know, lower level systems, whether it's the sensors or robots, like, like the, the connectivity is there as well. And so that, yeah. that is here too. Uh, the things that are a little bit more, I, I mean, some of it is here. So, you know, so, so people talk a lot about deep learning and AI and like, I have a, you know, I have a love hate relationship with those terms as well as with AR, which, you know, I wrote my 250 page uh, PhD dissertation on AR. And so we can, you can talk about that as much as you want. And we'll run out of time probably. But the point is like these, these things are, um, are kind of sometimes in the eye of the beholder, sometimes are very real. So like you can, you can, if you have the data and you have the data models and the context, you could, uh, you know, teach com computer could learn. Okay, and you can teach them how to detect anomalies, uh, predict uh, fault states. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of work, and which will get announced soon. Like, you know, the, the the place we like to apply it is like, you know, using uh, computer vision, like to to help humans. And so, more on the horizon is as a, a realm of assistive uh, user interfaces. Um, you know, uh, if you have all the data about production, you can imagine what kind of uh, uh, what 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 can you deduce on, on uh, you know, how products are made, why they're made a certain way, and so on. Now, 
now this this is like I mentioned, it's all, all this deep learning in AI is as good as your data collection, your contextualization of the data, and your ability to have interfaces quickly built for people to actually act on it. And I'm not talking yeah. about the dashboards for the executives that you know we kind of take for granted that any enterprise class product would collect data and show it to you in a meaningful way. You know, otherwise, what's the point, right? I'm talking yeah. about the people on the shop floor where you know they need. You know, imagine for a second, if you can, that you're a, a production engineer and you're in charge of a value stream with, you know, dozens of stations and like you have the full context of the line, you know what you need to measure, you know who you need to train, you know yeah. where you want to deploy certain sensors, but you have to orchestrate it, you have to put it together. So what tools are you using? Yeah. This is exactly what an industrial operation uh, platform like Tulip is doing. We're yeah. giving you the tools to do that. So we'll uh, we'll chat about that in one second. I just have one more question in sort of leading up to that, and and as, that's actually about AR. So augmented reality it has been on the horizon for a long time. It was very often confused with virtual reality, which is, I guess, arguably quite a different thing. Uh, and, and then you have you know XR entering you know the sort of the extended reality. There's like all kinds of ways to sort of try to say we are there or we are at a fruitful uh, you know kind of point right now. What is the situation really with with AR? Is COVID, yeah. for instance, this big shift that's going to finally make AR real in the manufacturing and in in many other environments, or is AR still a little bit of a sci-fi topic in your head? Yeah, I might make a few people upset here, but that's okay. Uh, You know, the way I see AR fundamentally, you know, the ideas are out there. There's, there are pretty good systems, but at the end of the day, above all, if you think about it from, for a second, from the wearable perspective, it is, it is a form factor problem. It is, is there, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, piece of equipment that you can trust that can reliably help you overlay digital information and that doesn't like uh, make people uh, uh, feel very weird in the context of the environment. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm, I've been watching wearables mature for the past decade. So there's been tons of progress and there's, there's, there's definitely leading use cases like, you know, for the service scenarios um, and, and companies are doing great things. And like we can register information in 3d to an object and detect it, detect it. And that, that's all great. And, yeah. but I think, you know, once we have the real consumer electronic giants, like an Apple or something like that come up with a form factor, like you, you would think about AR kind of more or less the way you think about your mobile phone. Now, I'm I'm an AR skeptic to a degree where it comes to like the value of uh the the classic see-through AR that you know you hold your hand to a phone and like you interact with stuff uh from two perspectives. One is like the the content creation side which I think is uh still a tough problem and needs to get simple as building uh web application. I, I don't believe personally it's there. Um, it's getting there. Uh, but also because, you know, really interacting with digital information through like an intermediate device, like a mobile phone, sometimes is very cumbersome. Like you better interact with well, reality well, so here, This is my real question, I guess. Uh, I'm having uh, various people on the show about AR soon. And one of them, uh, I'll, I'll let him explain on the show. But the point is, his point is, you can't really do this on a on a cell phone. This is going to be its own right. form factor. So this is my That's point: true. is the form factor that AR is going to take on an existing cell phone is that even AR or is it just something different? Because from what I understand, the true vision of AR um, 
requires its own device. Yeah, I, I think there's some, you know, I'm, I'm, my answer is like through very sort of enterprise AR type use cases unless the, uh, you know, because you can argue Pokemon Go is like a pretty cool AR game that got... Well, sure, sure. In gaming, that's a little bit different just because right. people are also willing to buy the the, the hardware for to a much bigger extent, right, than, than yeah, people might, and, and the, you know. And the, and the mobile phone form factor becomes part of the experience in a way that is... Um, adding value to you know to the gaming and, and this and that, but like yeah, yeah. you know, is it cool to like view a machine through like a, a mobile phone and see the layers of the machine? Yeah, but can you actually hold your phone and the screwdriver together like to fix the thing? Probably not. So like you're trusting the brain of the human to like switch between those states, and this is where wearables come to play. And you know, are we my- back to Google Glass Enterprise? <laughs> Don't tell me that's another one. I mean, it is. Uh- Arguably, I mean, a pretty interesting form factor, right? It, I think you know we. You would look at them, you know, from a, even a five-year or a ten-year perspective, and you would. It's kind of like, and again, I'm, I'm saying, it, I'm saying it lovingly. It's like as if you told me like 30 years ago, look, the Atari is like an interesting form factor. So there's been an evolution. You know, now we're in the Nintendo Switch era. Okay. Look, so I think like- we all respect innovators, Natan. So we're we're speaking here with uh, with the context that we respect innovators, no matter what they're trying to do, and some of it will fail, not to the fault of the innovator, but just because they were, yeah. be- you know, before their times, right? They were working on problems for which context they don't control. Now, listen, I, we need to get into Tulip because. Okay. Tulip, you started in 2014. I have to say, I was one of the first you led into the lab. I was truly blown away. I I remember, and I don't know if I shared this with you, but when I walked out of that lab, uh, Natan, I thought this is one of the greatest I, for me, this was kind of the mo- mother of all demos. I had not, you know, I have not been there for the demo of the internet, so I don't know what uh, Douglas, uh, you know, Engelbart did. I, I have seen the video, but there was something about how you showed me the simplicity of it all. The fact that at least when I was there, you had hot pluggable things you could buy at Best Buy. Yeah. So there wasn't really anything in the devices you were using. It was the way that you put it together, but it was more than that. It was the fact that you so quickly understood that a frontline worker could be up and running and could at least, without really changing a lot of what they're doing in their day-to-day, could yield data from their operations that would just be able to self-correct. And yeah, so that was my experience. Where are you now? Well, now we're we're in a very exciting uh, point where we are scaling up. I think we, um, you know, from an entrepreneurial point of view, I feel pretty solidly that we have created a new category with a very strong product market fit uh, to, uh, you know, to, to define what is an industrial operation platform. Now, a lot of times, um, you know, like I, like I mentioned before, and again, I go back to this from no code because like, the, the the best idea you know the best ideas are actually kind of pretty simple and like there's like really fundamental small things that you change and they make all the difference so in our case is instead of thinking about a no code as something that IT would like what what would enable all this data ecology that you described and the ability to to create it quickly is the fact that you give it to people that have different contexts that they come with understanding that they are in the production line and they they know what they want to build. Now, it, it, the hard part is like to kind of create an environment where it's familiar enough to them. So we used 
really simple uh, interface. And, and the key metaphor was like something like, think about a PowerPoint, but instead of making a PowerPoint, you're effectively creating an application. Who doesn't use PowerPoint? And that's well, see, how- That's what I love about it. You're not alienating the workers because you, you're actually validating their everyday experience. So that, the, the point would be, if you said, you know, here's this fantastic thing you're going to put on your head. Here are all these magical gloves you're going to put on. But uh, yeah. by the way, they weigh like five pounds. You know, it's like you weren't inconveniencing people. And that was my what I liked about it. Yeah, and it's you know it's more than that, and and I'll tie it to the comment you just made. It's it was like giving them superpowers and saying, you know what, you want to connect this sensor to that and get some UI here and a form from the user there and like send stuff to your boss as a dashboard. You you can do that, and you don't need a system integrator, and you don't need like fifteen RFP meetings with IT, and you can uh, show the demo working tomorrow, and yeah. that. That changes the game. And like, if you tie it back to what I said in the beginning, where hardware and software meet and a, a human that is doing work in the enterprise context come together, you're unlocking value. So, you know, the, the classic example for that is like, and this is a little bit rhetorical, so apologies to all our listeners. It's like, is the world going back to uh, uh, paper-based uh, you know, design instead of CAD? Of course not, because computers and computer-aided design is a fundamental better way to do that. It's, it's kind of like the same thing, you know? So it's yeah. not because no code is cool or anything like that. It's because you're eliminating the cost and complexity of system integration and you're changing how manufacturing works on the floor and, and or operations for that matter. So and you uh, call me, it democratizing the shop floor. Yeah. That must be a very wide version of the word democracy. But I think I actually understand what you mean because you are um, at least empowering the frontline yep. workers on the on the shop floor yep. to as much as they of course they are still going to be part of a manufacturing line and they're not going to be the boss but they you are kind of giving them like you said some powers that they didn't have they can uh certainly be tracked and trackable uh you know uh, so that you can trace back right. um i'll give you Challenges, but also good things that they're doing, I'm assuming, right? Because, you know, usually these things are control technologies. So they're all about catching flaws. We have to stop the manufacturing line because Bob here did something wrong. But you're also right. giving them... Can you give me some sense of some of the tangible positive things that you give back to these frontline workers? Yeah, that's exactly what I want to talk about. So the 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 reality is, you know, you, you say about giving them things, but you know, go back to lean, like the best lean teams scrum together, you know, software engineering and engineering in general stole away lean methodologies, like from manufacturing. What does it mean? It means, you know, means, you know, this term Gemba, like go to where work is done, ask the people, you know, talk to them. You, you, you go to the frontline workers and you say, how do you want this software to work? And they tell you, you go to the yeah. frontline worker and, and they, and, and they say, you know, I have three ideas and, and they're, and you know, the next day you can show them, Hey, here's your idea in action. And then the last, it, it, these are generic, but they can become very, very specific very quickly. You know, you go to them and you show them the information and it's not with a delay and with the, weight or burden of the control or the tracking you mentioned. So, because, yeah. because when you, you know, the, the most, anar you know, uh, you know, it's like, you know, the anarchist version of lean is like, there are no boss, no bosses whatsoever. It's like completely run on its own. It's all fully transparent. I'm not advocating for that. Of course. I'm just saying that's like, if you yeah. go to lean theorists, like that's what they would tell you that that's the best operation. 
because yeah. you, they, they're self-managers and they're distributed and so on. I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but like the, the reality is like information gives uh, a lot of trust, creates a lot of trust between uh, the people on the shop floor, the people who build the, their environment, the people who manage them and, and fund them, the people who need to sell the product. And that, that transcends. And that's like, you know, we, we can, you can, you can go from there to like how our supply chains are configured because that transparency also goes across organizations, you know? So Natan, tell me, here's, here's how I've sold a meeting with you to probably 20 multinationals. And you know, you and I go, go, go back and I have indeed sold those meetings. So you've, you've gotten those meetings. Tell me what's good and what's not so good about the way that I characterized you guys back in 2014, 15. So what I basically told executives is that here's a software and a hardware sensor system that without interrupting the worker can take you away from the situation that you, and I think you were the ones showing me this, you basically just showed me a like a list of 20 manual steps that a typical manufacturing worker has to go through. And then they have to cross them off manually, literally just ticking off what they did. And then with a little note, if something went wrong. And yeah. that sounds to me really, really cumbersome. But what I saw in your lab, and at least what I was selling to them, was that list is not possible. Uh, you know, you can't optimize work when you have that list because you're constantly stopping what you're doing. What you guys provided is essentially a sensory environment so that all of those 20 things were ticked off that list by the sensors or the cameras that you installed. So in other by words, the, and, and the motion and the motion and interaction, and the, the motion, interfaces. Exactly. Yeah. Both the interactions and the motions were basically happening as you were doing them, as opposed to creating a separate task that was logging. So yeah. logging the work takes you out of the work context. Now, this is how I sold it. And to people who had real experience on their own factory floors, this is the holy grail. Yeah. To what extent were you able to deliver what I sold? I, I think we're on our way to delivering exactly that. And we're getting every day better. And, you know, we're seeing what our users are doing. And it's like pretty phenomenal. Um, and, and you know, we are coming in and like we're training the trainers. So like, you know, we're, we're able to kind of get uh, dozens of engineers across like multiple plants able to come up with their own ideas and like effectively you know this bottom-up transformation starts occurring um and and that's not new necessarily for lean manufacturing because that's part of the principles like to give that power to the people but we yeah. became the tool to facilitate that i think the, the thing that is challenging, and I'm not saying like you did a bad job selling us like that. That's good. If you know, if this blog thing doesn't work, you know, give me a call. Like we'll, <laughs> we'll find something for you to do. But look, right. my, my point is, is that, um, uh, ma manufacturers have been, uh, promised like from IT perspective, the stars and the moons. And when you think about manufacturing operations, people like they are really sort of, uh, show me how it worked type of people, you know, don't tell me yeah. stories. Don't like give me your big words on like how there's a module for everything, you know, for the cat and the dog that I need to, and like how it will all seamlessly connect. Like, you know, it projects die hard and like there's a collective PTSD from that. So our, you know, the way I, you know, the reason I'm excited and like what 
what uh, I think we've been able to deliver is like this new way of doing things that avoid pilot purgatory that just like, okay, like we'll run a program and in three years we'll check in and we'll find that, you know, we, we got three screens and $3 million, you know? And, and, and like, that ties into an, an anecdote that I'm sure you're using, but I, I use uh, about you as well. I mean, we got this call, right? After we had introduced you to a, a, a corporation and, you know, and you guys had, you know, been on the plane you were basically there and implementing your thing. And I, uh, the, the bosses essentially of this factory called us up and said, you know, where is, where are, where is Tulip? Yeah. And I think the idea was you had already finished the task in two and a half days and were already on the plane back to the U.S., Yep. And I love that anecdote because it illustrates, and I don't, I, and I think it's true because I was there and experienced it. It illustrates what you're saying, though. You're you're not just saying that this is a fast implementation. It truly is very very fast, and it's shocking to people that something goes faster than you promised. So you you you've done a little yeah. bit of over delivering. Uh, but but you know, but you know on, I have to tell you something about that. Uh, yeah, we've done a few. Things correctly. Yes, the tech is great. The product is awesome. Come try it. Do the code. Awesome. However, right. however, every time we were successful, there was a, there was like some level of readiness from the team on the ground of the receiving organization that they were ready to change and truly, you know, uh, uh, do something differently. And it takes different well, shapes and forms. That was going to be my follow-up, Natan, because yeah. I haven't really traced that example. And I would be really curious to hear in that particular case, you know, are they still using it? Because, and it doesn't really matter, maybe they're not, but, but to your point, er, and it's not true, not everybody can do a good demo. Some companies are really good at demos, but they can implement. What, what does it take to overcome this? I'm great at demos and truly implement. And then, you know, after that three day demo, Make sure that the so you said of course the company has to have some certain preparedness and skills themselves. But yeah. what what are the other elements that makes for a successful manufacturing implementation now? Yeah, you know from the startup perspective and like this is you know pe people forget sometimes to break SaaS or you know SaaS means software as a service. So it's not done when you're on the plane back and celebrating your great uh, demo. It's, no. it's like maniacal customer focus where you're you know every decision we make. Um, every system we build is kind of designed to um, increase the utility of the customer from the product and the service we sell. And yeah. we we are only interested to put our systems where we effectively create you know make money for our customer. Not some veneer like to collect data, not none of that. But and and the thing is that when you're living in this like rich data environments that we've been discussing today, like they actually count the return on investment all the time. Because you can, you can, you can multiply the number of quality issues with the time you spent with like what, what you spent into, uh, I don't know, building the system or changing it and so on. And that, can you that hit is, on a couple of examples of, uh, companies that you can actually name by, by, by brand name where you, uh, are actively working right now? I mean, I understand you can't outline what you're doing for them in detail, but things that you have written up already. What are some of the companies where you have actually, crossed off uh, the dots and the T's and you, you're in their production line. Yeah, sure. I can name a couple of the, you know, the public uh, case studies. One of them is like actually behind me. This is j you know, what, the premier um, 
contract manufacturer, you know, contract manufacturing is a high paced complex environment. In this case, you know, we're talking about operations that are designed to do prototyping really quickly of, uh, you know, before they go into mass production. So you have, you know, really, you know, new product and product, new product introduction process, NPI that needs to ramp up very quickly. And like, but, you know, one day you might want to build like a, you know, a network appliance and the other day you want to build a storage device and it's roughly the same thing, you know, electronic box build, but you want to come in and press a button and change that, com- that, that line completely. So, yeah. you know, that, that is a, that is a good example of like where, you know, Tulip comes to play. Uh, I can give you another example, completely different area. And that, that's like where it transcends, um, cause humans are everywhere. And in fact, you know, in fact, like they're not going anywhere. That doesn't matter how many automation robotics we have. But but a company like Dent Supply, that is one of the largest uh, uh, digital dentistry vendors on the planet, and uh, you know we're we're part of their production line and helping uh, helping them with uh, their quality operation. And it's such a build to order because if you think about it, it's a product that could be a set of abutment and tools that goes into your mouth for 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 a dental procedure, and you 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 can imagine what happens if you don't get it right and you need to turn it around very quickly to get it to the, to yeah. the dentist and so on. So having like a, a full kind of end to end quality to, to lines like that uh, makes a lot of difference and, and allows them to get to, um, I, I, I can't really say, but like, you know, very dramatic results on the quality, but not only that on the, uh, um, the training, you know, the training that they have to do to get someone to learn all those things. Like, this stuff has a mathematical space in, in, in like the options that you can make their product like in the billions, you know, because of the number of procedures, number of teeth, the numbers of materials, the number of yeah. different tweaks to the, to, to the process parameters. And it, it's really tough to teach people and it's really tough to write software to that. So this is exactly where we play. But you said something that I paused at, uh, humans are not going anywhere. I mean, that is a whole debate, right? The Sure. Automation, does it replace, uh, you know, the robots replace the people? So you have a very clear position on that. You think uh, no matter what technologies come in, there's going to be ample jobs for people? Yes, they're just going to use their brain to do what humans are good at. And yeah. right, right now, we the, ro- the robots are just not good at, you know, many things. Anything. I was just watching, you know, like the other day, like this, you know, robot replacing a human putting like a, uh, you know, I don't know, boxes and bins or something like that. So clearly, you know, we have the technology to do that. And then it becomes like a weird um, calculation of, uh, you know, how much you invest, like to automate this and what's the ROI. So, but it's clearly a job that a human should not do. So we should be okay with those jobs disappearing. But that human can fill in one of the 2.5 million jobs that humans should do today that is not putting stuff in bins. It's like understanding why a more sophisticated production line is not running on time, you know? Yeah. And I mean, even in the robotic uh, uh, kind of poster child case uh, picking, right? Picking robots is what you were talking about. Yeah. In Norway, where I'm from, right? Picking strawberries is a big thing. And it was a massive issue during COVID right now because, you know, they usually rely on foreign workers to do their picking. The point is, good luck going out there and trying to pick strawberries because, you know, here's a soft berry that's buried within a lot of other greenery. Now, you know, you can pick a lot of stuff on the agricultural fields, but picking strawberry doesn't seem to me the first use case that we're going to be yeah. replaced by. So, so anyway, even within picking our challenges. Look, Natan, I wanted to ask you, uh, you have such good visibility. What are some of the other startups uh, 
that you consider promising in the, uh, I guess, uh, you know, industrial operations space? Yeah, I mean, there's like we were just talking about um, robotics. I think um, you know that that space is really happening. I don't know if you've met uh, the crew from Right Hand Robotics. They have uh, really awesome, um, you know, picking technology that yep. learns on the fly products, and that's critical for where you know the next generations of uh, warehouses and, and places like that. Um, I'm very excited about uh, one partner that we've been working with uh, called uh, Vention. That um, you know, they're up in Canada. A great company. They they basically uh, have a different take on how automations and machines should be designed. And like, they give you like this nice CAD environment, and you can like you know design your own machine. And then it, it's like it's kind of like IKEA for machines meets automation. You know, so like you wow. get the the kit of your custom machine. And the thing that this does is like again dramatically reduces the 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 time that you get through iterations of getting the right machine and reduces the complexity of, uh, of system integration. And it's again, it's building on the same themes, you know, of yeah. if you have a different experience to change how people work and yeah. that, that that's, that's the biggest value. Um, looking, looking ahead then, you know, startups uh, always look ahead. You look ahead with a lot of your startups um, looking at the next decade. What do you think will happen in industrial automation? Is this the big cent- I mean, is this the big decade where everything will come to fruition? Or is this the prep for the big uh, decade? No, it's 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 absolutely the decade, and it's 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 happening now. You know, uh, you, you can triangulate it like from what we're seeing in this pandemic, right? But like, forget manufacturing automation, all that for a second. Can you imagine going into this pandemic without like awesome internet, uh, uh, broad broadband internet, cloud storage, uh, all those all those uh, online on, I mean, it would have decimated tools. the world economy. It would have decimated the it, world it, economy. Yeah, it would decimate yeah. the world economy. So we yeah. don't have to argue that long that these technologies are here and they're widely adopted and everybody got the memo. Now, what this pandemic did, and but I think it, it, it already started before the pandemic, just to be clear, it, it accelerated the digital transformation, you know, train. And like the discussions, like, like, you know, with early adopters, there's never a problem, but like we used to get calls from people who were like on the fence on the cloud, or we don't know this, that suddenly like, of course we're doing cloud, you know? So all of this is happening now and it's happening in, in, in a big way. And I think the, this is where, um, like one of my favorite examples is like, when you see, like, you can put the inter- the growth of the internet next to like, um, uh, the growth of open source and they're correlated. And the reason yeah. they're correlated is because they, they, they force fed each other. You know, you had more people on the network, more people contributed, there was more information. And so more products came out. And in a way, when we talked about democratization and things like that, this is what we're trying to do. So if you look at things like yeah. manufacturing works, it's like share the knowledge. Uh, I mean, don't give me, don't give the IP to your competitors, but like, if you have a community of people dealing with like how are we making manufacturing process better, you're going to get better manufacture, manufacture, manufacturing hmm. processes. And if you're using similar tools, and again, there could be other tools, you know, like Tulip and or in the stack of the manufacturing or operation platforms that you might put together in a best of breed, and that that is great. Um, and, and you know, we have partners that we're we're working on in that fashion. Then you're helping your customers get the system they need like gone are the days of like one you know you call ibm sorry for my friends at ibm and like 
<laughs> you say, hey, IBM, come come down here and get me this, that, and the other, and like you'll take care of all my IT needs. Like that's well. Done. See, now so, you're on to something, which is this idea that these things are really complicated, but you kind of have to know a little bit as a as a customer. How do you advise my listeners, whether they are truly in the manufacturing field or they're watching it? or they want to get into it as innovators. How do you track trends? How do you stay informed? I know you guys have put on this Agile Manufacturing Summit yeah. and you're active in something called, what is it? The New England Advanced Manufacturing, manufacturing Hub. Hub. Yeah. yeah. So there are some activities that you have undertaken. What are the most important places you should hit? You know, Whether they be influencers like yourself and uh, entrepreneurs to talk to, whether they be... I don't know, futurists, uh, crazy folks uh, talking about trends, or, or they are true networks of professionals and, and, and hubs of startups, or, or what, where should people go? So there's no shortage. Like, you know, community, you know, the communities you're, you're talking about, it, you know, I kind of strongly believe in the, in the you know, while the internet is great, but uh, the work we do is very much a, a local sport. You know, there's yeah. a lot of practitioners and, and, and like meeting them, like there's no substitute and we're now doing it obviously online. So that's why the advanced manufacturing, uh, the, uh, advanced manufacturing hubs is a great thing. And, and there, there's tons of programs and things like that. I, I, you know, we're, I, I go to all the usual places, you know, like, like Reddit is, is awesome. Core is awesome. Like, uh, I guess, it, it, you know, like, uh, th there is, um, there is this effect of like when you're starting to actively and, I, and I've seen it, uh, I'm sure you've seen it too. It's like the internet comes to you. So like all these things come to you and that's like the, just the beginning of the search. Um, but I, I well, just find... Not on, I don't don't uh, discount that the internet is coming to you because you are you. So, uh, you know, I'm speaking maybe from the perspective of someone who is tracking a lot of different technologies and no one's really coming to them. Of course... The moment you have hit the wrong website, they, they will come after you with their newsletters yeah. and stuff. But the point is, you could drown very easily. I mean, I'm easily subscribed to something like 50 newsletters. And that's obviously yeah. because I'm tracking you know, some 15, 20 technologies and, and the same number of industries. Uh, and I'm trying to advise mm -hmm. others on how to, to do this. But what are some of the top newsletters in manufacturing that, or, or even just, I mean, you obviously have this MIT background. Do you, do you track other places than the media lab for, for developments in manufacturing? Oh, yeah, for, for sure. I mean, the yeah. manufacturing has like really traditional, like organizations like, uh, you know, SME and AQS, you know, association of quality engineers and like all these typical organizations, but there's like kind of the new kids on the block. So, uh, there's a, there's a really awesome blog called the prepared, that is kind of tracking hacker community that that hacker manufacturers i guess that yeah. uh, that that is that is a very cool blog that you know i follow uh quite regularly and then like i don't know if uh, it's like what i find is like sometimes you find the right individual and like that's the person you need to read and that's like the above the 80 percent. so like for the for ar i read this guy um carl gutag i don't know if you heard about him but he's really rich AR background all the way from TI DLP days and um, has, has been a critique of like the Magic Leap and, uh, you know, Microsoft HoloLens, like breaks them apart, thinks about the business. And like you read that, you know, on, on the open source hardware software ecosystem, like 
people like Bunny Hawang from MIT, probably you heard this name before. He's been doing all our all all the teardowns for Formlabs, you know. Mm. And um, so there, there's like these people that you know, if you see what they do and like tune to them, that you're just getting a lot of a lot of a lot of good stuff without the noise. So here comes the uh, uh, coffee question slash uh, sitting in front of the fireplace question. What are you onto next? You're always onto something. Uh, you know, this is clearly a public forum, so you're not going to give me your life <laughs> secrets. But uh, any exciting startup plans, new board roles, product plans? Uh, are you going to go surfing? You know, what's what's happening? Right now, I'm like locked up in my house. So it's like I'm going many places in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> more than I would be able to like go for real, which is, uh, yeah, not simple. I, you know, really I'm, I'm, I've been, you know, I've been doing my own, I, I don't, I, I don't have more plans to start more companies. Like, uh, I'm, I'm very focused on scaling up Tulip and, uh, uh, helping Formlab get to the next level. And that's like plenty on my plate. Uh, I am trying to help the community and working with like really exciting entrepreneurs, that uh, I've been involved with as an advisor or investor, and uh, they all in the same theme, you know, like new new biological, you know, um, lab equipment, new processes for dental robotics, like all those things we discuss. So, what yeah. what I you know, other than like, yeah, it's nice to put you know do some angel investments and try and like um, you know help build great companies from like just that that perspective what's more exciting is work with like-minded founders who are like i don't i, I don't know if they're fearless but definitely they have enough courage to like try, try and like do this hardware software game in in a in a meaningful way which is uh not not simple and it's just great to work with them all right well that's that's what i got from you thank you <laughs> okay. for that I, I know there's My more boom. to the story. There's always more to the story, but I, I we, but I we appreciate can do, that. We can do a, uh, what do you call it? a sequel? Like, uh, we can do a sequel. I was going to, I was going to yeah. ask you that. Thank you for, uh, for volunteering. Thanks so much for today. This was uh, fantastic. I, I learned a lot and I hope my listeners learned something too. Um, we'll, uh, continue the conversation. Excellent. Thank you for having me, John. Always yeah. a pleasure. Struggling to crack the code on innovation? Don't look too hard. Buy the book. Disruption Games How to Thrive on Serial Failure by Trond Unheim was published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Common Wisdom says that success breeds success. However, what if only repeated failure does? The author has followed thousands of founders and startups at MIT and beyond as they struggle, pivot, fail, or succeed. The secret? Training as if for the Olympics with the top mentors, being in the right places, and and deeply examining what you learn along the way. The biosphere of innovation cannot be a template between R&D, innovation labs, partnerships, startup scouting, corporate venturing, accelerators, or open innovation. You never know where the breakthrough starts. Thriving on failure is the way of science. In four moves, get exposed to disruption, take or simulate risk, persist until point of failure, reflect and recover. Buy the book anywhere books are sold and learn more at disruptiongames.com. You have just listened to episode 18 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arneunheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of industrial operations. Our guest was Nathan Linder, 
CEO and co-founder of Tulip Interfaces, the manufacturing technology platform spun out of MIT Media Lab. We talk about fusing hardware, software, and design to create new product experiences. My takeaway is that manufacturing is about to change in ways that will make it unrecognizable from just a decade ago. In the process, it will become sexy again. Robots will do many tasks, but humans will, in turn, take on other, even more fulfilling tasks. The key is to make technology seamless and unobtrusive, which is not easy. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.